And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich, pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York. Good to be here, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt, professor, Ulster County Community College. Thanks for having us. Well, gentlemen, today we're talking about an interesting subject, and the question is, how does our current political situation, or maybe I should say our current governmental situation, compare to the original idea of our republic? And then like a second part of that question is, how does it compare to what the Bible would prescribe for us? So I know this is really a huge subject, but um, a lot of our friends are quite concerned, you know, as we go to church or go to an event. Hans, the other day, and Mark, we were at a picnic together, and uh, we're talking about government and I think there's a lot of concerns on the ground, us common folk, (laughs) um, regarding um, our freedoms, uh, regarding uh, morality, regarding where is this country headed, Mm -hmm. things like that. So who wants to get us started today on this giant discussion? Well, one of the things I think we see in both the original Constitution and in the Bible is the idea or the principle that government needs to be limited, and that while government has a useful role to play within its sphere, um, both the Bible and the Founding Fathers, you know, had a very realistic uh, opinion of human nature, understood the sinfulness of human nature, and that because of that human sinfulness, it is never wise to give too much power to an individual or to a government, because Mm -hmm. power does tend to corrupt, as Lord Acton said. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's right. You not only have the corruption of power, but you have it draining the people in so many ways. I think we do see that in the in the scriptures. We see it in several ways. And uh, I I know before we started, Dan, you were talking. First Samuel eight gives a, that great uh, great passage there that tells about the children of Israel wanting a king, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, Samuel said, okay, you're going to have the king, but this is what's going to happen, and this is what did happen. I don't know, did you want to read that, Dan? Well, yeah, Um, since you referenced it here, Mark, I do have my Bible open. Maybe you do, too. Um, It's 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, I'll read part of it. You can read part of it. Uh, Let me just get started while you're still opening your pages there. It starts at verse 10, I think, is the, the pertinent. Okay. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. I'll let you continue. Okay. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. 
And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And now, I think this is funny, this passage, because he says he will take a tenth what you have. Wouldn't it be nice to only have to pay 10% of our income as taxes? My thoughts, exactly. I know we're going on a rabbit trail all of a sudden, but you and I didn't talk about this before we opened the mic. And that was my thought exactly, that, you know, in God's estimation, uh, this is what is considered exorbitant by God when the civil magistrate takes as much as the tithe. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And our civil magistrate, of course, is taking more than that. And so, um, anyway, this is an important passage overall in the consideration today in this discussion. And that's one of the passages that Thomas Paine used in Common Sense Mm. uh, to try to get his fellow Americans to see that they didn't need a king. One of, of course, the great arguments for having kings was the idea that it was divine right. God appointed kings. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Paine, who was not really a Christian himself, but certainly knew his Bible, (laughs) said, uh, look, God doesn't approve of kings. Look what the prophet Samuel told the people of Israel, what a king was going to do. Of course, Thomas Paine was wrong in that. I wish he would have followed the rest of the Bible, as you say. He was not a Christian. Um, God did appoint kings. Actually, if you look... Uh, you can see even God realizing that even before Samuel, that there was going to be a king in Mm -hmm. Israel. And it was foreordained of God. Mm -hmm. It was foreordained, I think, as punishment. Mm. Now, this is the one of the things we understand. God ordains governments. He ordains all the governments. Mm -hmm. And part of that is actually punishment. Now, there is an ideal as to what a good government would look like. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, all of them are ordained by God. I would think a good government would would help us um, obey, for example, the Ten Commandments, um, such as uh, thou shalt not steal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like simple things like that. Yeah. Murder is wrong. <laughs> well, well, that's what you you see that in Romans, in Romans chapter thirteen, uh, and of course this whole thing with with Paul and, and Romans talking about the government. If you look at Romans chapter thirteen, he says, "Let every person be subject to the government and authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed." And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, there again, that basic principle, God establishes the Mm -hmm. government. Now, he goes on for that. For rulers are not a terror. Now he's talking about the ideal ruler. Mm -hmm. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoing. Therefore one must Mm -hmm. be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then he says, for the same reason, you also pay taxes Mm-hmm. For the authorities are the ministers of God attending to this very thing. So he rewards good, he punishes evil. Mm-hmm. Now, when did Paul write this? 
Well, Paul wrote Romans uh, somewhere around 56 A.D. Who was the ruler? Hans. Nero. Nero. He started in 54. Mm-hmm. Mm. He didn't end till 68 A.D. Now all you have to do is go to 1 Timothy 2.1, and Paul's tone is a little bit different. See, early Nero, what people mm. don't understand, is early Nero, everyone was looking at him for hope and change. Right. Claudius mm. was not that good an emperor. And so Nero started off good, and, and everyone really thought this was going to be the good guy. And, and I think that's somewhat reflective of how Paul writes in Romans. Let me just uh, pause for just a moment. I see the time got away on us. You're listening to A Plain Answer today. In the studio is uh, Reverend Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. We're talking about government and how does our present government compare to the original idea for our republic as well as the biblical ideal. Stay with us. We'll be right back. God save the world. God save the child. Humble the strong. Strengthen the mild. Open my eyes that I might see. God save the world, starting with me. I light a candle, stare at the flame. I see the only way this world can change. One tiny light in each of us, a seed of hope, a mighty love. God save the world, God save the child, humble the strong, strengthen the mild. Open my eyes That I might see God save the world Starting with me We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, one. Two four six one. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box fifteen twenty, Olive Bridge, New York, one two four six one. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. God save the world. God save the child. Humble the strong. Strengthen the mild Open my eyes That I might see God save the world 
starting with me. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. In the studio with me today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. We've been talking about government and the role for government as the Bible describes it. And then, of course, we'll be getting back to the original idea of our republic by the founding fathers. So, Mark, take it away. Well, I was talking about how Nero had started off good. But then, everybody knows he became this megalomaniac. Well, when Paul writes his letter to 1 Timothy, that's roughly 64 A.D., that's during the Neronian megalomania. Hear how he writes. He says, First of all, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Yeah. See how he's lowered the bar suddenly. Mm-hmm. He's not expecting Nero to reward good and punish evil. He, ah. He's just saying, let's pray that at least we'll have some peace so we can spread the gospel. Yeah, good point. That Nero will stop using us as human torches That's for his right. parties. And he right? did that. He, yeah. Yes, yeah, he did. Indeed. Yeah. Definitely. This is an excellent point. And obviously the ideal king is Jesus Christ himself. You know, Jesus Christ, you know, fulfills those three roles of being prophet, priest, and king. And he is the ultimate fulfillment of Mm -hmm. the Davidic kingship. Uh, And so governments then, all governments on earth, and that would of course include our own, are just insofar as they conform to God's standards, to Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ's standards, the biblical standards of what government should be. And when God says in uh, Romans 13, he's God's minister to you for good, who defines that good? Who defines evil? Well, it would be the biblical definition, right? Well, absolutely. And and that's one of the things, I think, when we get back to the Founding Fathers, they had an idea of what good was, and they had an idea of what liberty was. Mm -hmm. Their sense of liberty was not to do anything you felt you wanted to do, Mm. but their idea of liberty was to do things that, you thought would be good. It had more a concept of virtue. Hans could probably enlarge on that. Well, absolutely. And and this was pretty much a universal thing. I mean, even, you know, if you look at some, you know, a few of the founding fathers who weren't Christians themselves or who were deists, but even the deists believed that the moral laws of the Bible were part of the natural laws that govern the universe. Mm-hmm. So even if they didn't, you know, believe in the divinity of Christ um, or you know some of the classic Christian doctrines like that, they still believe that the Bible set forth a moral code that was binding on human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll very often hear people say, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, that's just simply an inane statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The reality is that all laws are based on morality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The question is, whose moral code is going to be enacted? Precisely. Exactly. Yeah, and and when you look at, see, for example, today with the right to an abortion, I think that would never have entered the minds of our founding fathers because Hmm. they realized that human beings were created with the imago dei. They were created Mm. in the image of God, and therefore innocent human life is sacred. Well, it's one of the three basic rights, you know, that John Locke and the founding fathers talked about, life. Liberty and property. Well, mm-hmm. life is first and foremost. And so the, the whole idea of right to mm-hmm. life is foundational to our entire system of government. Mm-hmm. And the Constitution itself is designed, you know, one of its fundamental purposes is to 
protect the life of its citizens. Mm -hmm. Now, we have this Constitution in America. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Um, How did that whole thing come about? Uh, Did everybody right away say, oh, boy, I want a Constitution? Help me understand that. Well, the Constitution that we have now is actually our second Constitution. Hmm. Um, Initially, uh, after declaring independence, the Continental Congress uh, adopts an initial constitution which is known as the Articles of Confederation. And it creates a very loose and weak uh, government. There is no executive branch. There is no judicial branch. There is only the unicameral one-chamber Congress uh, with equal representation, at least in terms of voting, from each of the 13 states. Hmm. Uh, And it proves to be very difficult. Um, One of the problems it had was that it recommended laws and taxes to the states but could not enforce them. And as a result, um, surprisingly, the states usually chose not to send in all the recommended taxes. (laughs) Um, And this had a great impact on the Revolutionary War. Um, This is why George Washington was consistently complaining about his troops not getting fed and not getting clothes and not getting paid. And so... After the peace was signed uh, in the mid-1780s, a group of leaders, including Washington, began to say, you know what, we need a stronger uh, central government. Not an all-powerful central government, but we need to have a tighter government. Mm -hmm. George Washington put it this way. He said, I predict the worst consequences from a half-starved, limping government, Mm. always moving upon crutches and tottering at every step. Uh, I have a feeling as he writes that, he's picturing one of his soldiers at Valley Forge. Yeah. So what comes out of the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, our constitution, the second one, is a stronger national government, yes, but still a limited government. Uh, and one that was based upon the idea, again, that it was unsafe and unwise to put too much power into any one person or any one branch of government. You needed to separate powers. You needed to have checks and balances. James Madison, one of the architects, put it this way. He said, this is in Federalist 51, he said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, again, no restraints on government would be necessary. But that's, of course, not what we have. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so he says... In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. I wish we had one of these Madisons today. (laughs) Mm. Wow, that says a lot. Um, How did did the average man on the street, I wonder, feel as um, the Constitution rolled out and the states start to ratify it? I mean, were they comfortable with it? Um, Many were concerned. They were concerned mm-hmm. that it was certainly a much more powerful government than the Articles mm-hmm. of Confederation. Mm-hmm. They were concerned that it might grow in power and grow in size and be a threat to their liberty. Hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. they had reason for those concerns, yeah. <laughs> looking back on it from 230 looking back, years later. Looking back, maybe so, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but certainly um, had, I think, the initial ideas of limited government, of enumerated and therefore limited powers for government, had that been stuck with, um, we would not be, I think, where we are today. I think one of the big problems you have when the government grows is the government then becomes that which uh, replaces God. 
it becomes its own idol. Exactly. And that's uh, yes. that's one of the big problems that I see today. And I, I hear a lot yes. of uh, political commentators, a lot of people in politics who think that politics is the be-all and end-all of yeah. this world. And in so doing, they're blaspheming God. Mm. And, and have you noticed also, even uh, the channels, I'm talking TV now, that are more conservative talk channels, news channels, um, you step back and you say, okay, what percentage of their programming is talking about the federal government as opposed to a news story, let's say, out of here in the town of Olive, where we are, or, yeah. or maybe the state government. And it's phenomenal, the percentage difference. Everything is about the federal government. Now, of course, they're concerned about it, but it's almost like implicit is this understanding that, oh, yeah, uh, if we can just change this, then the federal government is going to fix the situation. Well, and that reflects, I think, what the major sea change that happens in the 20th century and is continuing to happen. And that is the concentration of power in the federal government and uh, power being taken away, sucked away, you might say, from state and local governments into the federal government. Mm. When you look at traditional federalism, there were only a few areas that the federal government was supposed to uh, regulate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, tariffs, uh, currency, uh, internal improvements, um, interstate commerce, trade between the states. Now, you're a professor, and I don't need to tell you that, but, but here in the studio, prior to this program today, you sent us uh, some, I call them foils. I see how old I am? Some slides <laughs> uh, about the Constitution. And there was one fascinating slide there, and uh, can you explain, uh, you're just touching on it right now, um, called traditional federalism. And right. you, you started to enumerate some of these national government policies, and there's a list under the national government what they're responsible for, and there's like, what, six items there? Mm-hmm. How many is under state government? <laughs> the, the bulk, uh, you know, it's 20 huge. items or so. Sure. Traditionally, yeah. states were responsible for most laws. They were responsible for um, you know, business regulations, incorporation, family yeah. and public health, morality, uh, property laws. Um, you know, land use, water use, all those things were traditionally left up to state governments. I look at this and I say, wait a minute, that's a government I signed up for, even though I wasn't alive then. But that's where my heart lies. I mean, what yeah. what on earth has happened? I think what we've seen is, is a more centralization. And as you get centralization, we have a return to the Tower of Babel. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you really see, beginning at the turn of the 20th century... Um, and Theodore Roosevelt uh, is one of the prime architects of this, and then mm-hmm. his his uh, fifth cousin Franklin, of course, carries it even further. Mm-hmm. But but you have a gradual concentration, first of all, in the executive branch of government. You have a proliferation of regulatory agencies uh, hmm. uh, overseeing more and more areas. And of course, one of the things about those agencies is that they are appointed, and therefore they are relatively immune from the public in terms of being able to vote anybody out of office. That is huge. And then the other area where we see power concentrate, of course, and and Mark, you touched on earlier, I think we were talking, is in the judicial branch of government, also not elected, Hmm. where you have in the 20th century increasingly uh, the judicial branch making laws. Now, legislature... The legislative branch is the one that is supposed to make the laws. Not but the increasingly, judges. Right. But increasingly, yeah. it's the executive branch and the judicial branch who are making laws. 
rather than the legislature. So that, that flies in the face of the intent of the framers to have uh, enumerated powers. Is that the right? Sure. Well, the whole idea of a republic is that the legislature, the elected legislature, the elected representatives of the people are the ones to be making the laws. The executive carries them out. The judicial branch enforces them. Mm. That's the way it's supposed to work. Um, That's not really the way it's working now, however. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just looking at the clock here, gentlemen. I realized, wow, um, time has slipped by so quickly. We're ready for some wrap-up comments already on this edition of A Plain Answer. In the studio with me today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. Um, We're talking about government and how our current situation has really changed from the way it was originally framed as a constitutional republic. And we're also making comparisons back and forth to what the biblical ideal would be. It's a huge discussion. We'll probably continue next week. Uh, Mark, how about some comments from you? Wrap-up thoughts. My biggest concern now is I see government growing larger and larger, that it is becoming more and more idolatrous. Mm. That is to say that it is seeing itself is the thing that keeps human beings. It's the one who who really keeps the citizenry and... uh, Hmm. That was so far from our founding fathers, and of course it's far from what the Bible wants. We know our life and our being is all dependent on God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, God is the one who is sovereign over all. Uh, government does have a legitimate role to play within its own sphere, but I think Mark's right. What we see is the government gradually taking over all spheres, mm. and when it does that, it does take on the role of God, and that does become idolatrous. May God have mercy on us. You know, uh, last couple of weeks we talked about the first and the second Great Awakening, and uh, may the Lord give us a third Great Awakening, and may it be reflective of what the first one was like. Isn't that right, Mark? I would agree. It's all we need. We need another Great Awakening. Amen. May the Lord have mercy. Thank you so much for tuning our way today here at Redeemer Broadcasting. You've been tuned to A Plain Answer. Uh, podcast of this uh, broadcast is available at our website and also is linked to iTunes. If you want to sign up for them, you can automatically get them sent to you. For Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. Please join us again next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. Open up my heart that I might see God save the world Starting with me